0: Exodus chapter 2, we're going to begin reading at verse 11, and I'll read down to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. This is what the word of the Lord says. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? In our study of Egypt, uh, Exodus really, we've been studying Egypt a little bit, but uh, we've been studying Exodus now for a couple of weeks, and really two themes have been developing um, somewhat independently. In chapter one, we saw Israel groaning, the beginnings of this theme that we'll look at today. And then in the first part of chapter two, we saw Moses growing. So Israel groaning and Moses growing, these themes have kind of been developing alongside one another. In our passage today, these two themes are going to now begin to intersect. We kind of suspected that they might, and our suspicions are confirmed as we come into verse 11. Now, Moses' amazing birth narrative might have obscured the fact that at this stage in their history, the people of Israel are in a really bad way. Indeed, the very reason that Moses' rescue was uh, so phenomenal is that he, along with every other Hebrew baby boy, was under a death sentence at that time. In the eyes of Egypt, Israel was a, a plague, if you wanna put it that way. And the final solution was to exterminate all the boys, and to kind of absorb all of the girls into slavery, into marriage. And then within a generation, they'd all be Egyptians. Now, the the slaughter of the the males is really just the most recent and perhaps the most brutal in a long line of policies that the Pharaoh had enacted against the Hebrews. Uh, You'll recall from chapter 1 that he had begun to deal very shrewdly with them, He had enslaved them. He had appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And these uh, masters made the people's lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and all kinds of work in the field. This is the language that chapter 1 piles up so that we wouldn't miss the point and we wouldn't forget that Israel is in a very bad way. And you can almost hear the groaning of the people as they stagger under this oppressive weight of affliction. And, and don't let the compressed timelines of, of these first two chapters fool you. It, it creates the impression that things are moving very quickly. But it, it kind of hides the fact that we're talking about oppression and thus the nation's groaning that endures for decades maybe centuries. And the question is, I guess as we come further in the text, is what will the response be? Will there even be any kind of response? Will things change now as they've been going on, as they've been going on for years and years and years? Do we expect any, any difference? Will there be any kind of response? And I just wonder, as we kick things off here, if you can relate to that. In any way. I hope you haven't experienced enslavement or been among the target demographic of a genocide. But no doubt you've been on the receiving end of some sustained hostilities, some <coughs> cruelty. And and some of you will know exactly what it's like to, to live under heavy affliction, whether that be relational or, or physical. Or what have you. you. You've done your fair share of groaning. I, I know that as, as your pastor. And perhaps you can relate to the psalmist when he says things like, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. And maybe you can also relate to his, his oft-repeated cry, How long, O oh Lord? How long? you wonder if there's going to ever be any kind of response to your groaning. And if that describes you in any way today, I trust that you're going to be comforted by God's word. There's so much comfort in God's word. We get to see two responses to these groanings of a nation, and these are going to serve as our two main headings. So we're going to see, first of all, the Hebrews response and second the heavenly response first the Hebrews response and then the heavenly response I want to be clear about this first point when I say the Hebrews response I'm talking about a singular Hebrew I'm not, we're not dealing with the Hebrews response But the response of one Hebrew in particular, and you ask, well, which Hebrew are you talking about? And the answer is, I'm talking about Moses. And that leads us to our first sub-point under this heading, which is his exodus. His exodus. In verse 6, the Egyptian princess, upon finding the baby boy, said, This is one of the Hebrew children. And that was, that was obvious enough at that point in Moses' life. And uh, I imagine it had to be pretty obvious for Pharaoh's daughter to be able to admit it, considering that she was regularly in denial. Uh, sorry, I, I got carried away. I thought you people liked corny dad jokes. I'll move on. But, but then Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, and, and he became her son. And, and we read, especially as Stephen explains this, that, that Moses is raised as an Egyptian in all of their wisdom. He got their full world-class education. Uh, he's adopting all of their customs, their food, their dress. And if you just take a peek at, you can, you have permission here to just look ahead at verse 19 where seven Midianite girls are telling their father about the man who chased away the bad guys. And this is what they said, an Egyptian delivered us. So it seemed very obvious to these uh, young ladies that Moses was an Egyptian. So which is it? Inquiring minds would like to know. Now that he's all grown up at the age of 40, is Moses a Hebrew or an Egyptian, Um, to use modern language and preoccupations we could ask which identity group has Moses chosen to identify with and so we find the answer right away in verse 11 it says one day when Moses had grown up he went out to his people and looked on their burdens he went out to his people and I want to just point out a couple of interesting words in uh, this verse, the word translated his people, which occurs two times in, in this passage. And I think that's real, it's intended for emphasis there, the, the repetition of his people. That word is literally his brothers. So, so there you have it. If you want to know who Moses' peeps are, who, who his bros are, it's his fellow Hebrews. There's no question about that. But I also want you to be very clear that in identifying with these people, these Hebrews, he's gonna be identifying with their burdens. You know, this is, a, this is a very conscious choice that he makes here. He sees their burden and then he desires to take those burdens upon himself. Now, there's another word in verse 11 that's quite interesting. It says that Moses went out to his people. Now, that might seem like a just a small little thing, maybe not even worthy of stopping us in our tracks, but that word translated went out is the word for exodus. This, this is a going out that, that Moses is engaged in here. And, and so what he, as the author, I believe, is, is describing is his... a a sort of exodus that he's engaging in, even before the exodus. And and what I think this means is that in identifying with these fellow Hebrews, he is, in a sense, going out of Egypt. He's leaving behind all of the power, all of the privilege, all of the prosperity that would be his, being um, being the grandson of Pharaoh, He's leaving all of that behind in order to identify with God's people and with their suffering. This is a going out of Egypt. Now, if you, I, I'm, uh, I don't want you to think that I'm you know, spiritualizing the text in an illegitimate way. And so I want to just remind you of how the author to the Hebrews describes what's going on here. In this passage that Glenn's read for us now a couple of weeks, Hebrews 11, Especially verse 24, we read, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. I love that. I love the New Testament commentary on these Old Testament events. And uh, it, it points us to things that we would naturally, I think, just skim over, just gloss over, including this detail that Moses is undergoing a sort of exodus. And this exodus of his is a real step of faith, it's a deliberate rejection of earthly treasures which, again, were certainly his for the taking. Instead, he chooses to identify with the people of God, and he chooses to enter into their misery and their mistreatment. What Moses valued higher than anything else was the wealth, the reward of being a son of the Most High God, Even even though that status, he understood, involved significant suffering. And the author to the Hebrews calls calls all of this the reproach of Christ. And that might seem just a tad anachronistic to you. But the point seems to be that the people of God in every era are are called to suffer. This is one of the, the clearest themes in all of Scripture. And this mistreatment that the people of God are are meant to undergo, this mistreatment is is manifest, I think most clearly, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, who stands as the supreme model of what it looks like to endure under much oppression and trial. And so uh, moving out from that supreme example of Christ, either backwards in time or forwards in time, I think it's proper to say that wherever you find people suffering, wherever you find the people of God enduring hardship and doing so in faith and in hope, whether that's Moses in 1500 BC or a missionary or a mom in 2023 AD, there, there you find people participating in the sufferings of Christ. So this is a word for you, certainly, who are currently sharing in Christ's suffering in a variety of different ways. This is a call to endure. This is is to encourage you to continue to walk by faith because your reward will be great. The, The Lord himself, as the prime example, has shown us very clearly that after temporary suffering comes everlasting glory. And so... Brothers and sisters, endure, endure hardship. We're almost home. And conversely, this is a word for, for any of you who might be here today and who are captivated by the world. Any, any here today who are allured by all, all of the promises of power and pleasure and, and possessions and treasure all that the world claims to have on offer. You need to know that the pleasures of sin are fleeting. I I don't want to give away too much of the story here, but stay tuned and you'll understand that Egypt is fixing to be destroyed. All, All of her treasure, the thing that everyone's clamoring after, the thing that you might be tempted to clamor after, all of that treasure is going to be transferred to the people of God. And so it will be with this world. And so may I suggest to you an exodus today, if you're in that, if you're in that spot today, may I suggest that you come out from among this world that's fixing to be destroyed, Come out from it and be separate. Identify with Christ and then identify with his people and save yourself from the wrath that is to come. Now for the second part of the Hebrews' response, let's see his exploits. His exploits. Verse 11 says that Moses looked on or saw the burdens of his people, but this seeing goes beyond mere observation. Okay, this kind of looking, looking upon is is observation, yes, but it's coupled with responsive action. And one of the burdens that Moses saw was an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, one of his brothers. And who knows whether this was one of these taskmasters that we read about in the previous chapter who, who was, were just ruthless in their treatment of the Hebrews. And, and that was official p- policy. They got raises probably based on how ruthless they were to the people of Israel. Or whether this was an average Egyptian citizen who, who didn't consider the Israelites worthy of any kind of dignity we don't exactly know. What we do know is that this mistreatment, this beating, provoked something in Moses. Something uh, snapped, as they say. He, he, he manifests a sort of righteous indignation. And listen to how Stephen described the situation in Acts 7. He, Stephen says, Seeing one of his brothers being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the egyptian after decades centuries even of affliction and mistreatment finally there's someone on the scene who you know is, is doing his best twisted sister impression shouting we're not going to take it anymore and so moses looks this way and that he he, he wants to make sure that the coast is clear. And once he does, he kills the Egyptian. And then he bur- buries him in a shallow grave, a sand, sandy grave. Now, let's just be honest about this. We're not exactly sure what to think of this exploit. On the one hand, Moses' instincts, you know, for, for defense and for, for rescue, this righteous indignation that he has in the face of violent oppression, all of those th- things seem very commendable. We we admire that in the man. I- indeed, I, I, personally speaking, I hope that I never grow cold or indifferent as I'm exposed, it seems like, on a daily basis, just bombarded with videos of, of people beating Burger King employees for getting their order wrong or people like Tyree Nichols getting brutalized by police. If we can witness such horrific treatment of people who are made in the image of God, if you can can witness that without your inner man kind of rising up in righteous indignation, then something is seriously broken in you and me. On the other hand, there, there's aspects to Moses' reaction that are a bit problematic, if we're being honest. You know, this, his premeditation of this, his, his looking this way and that to make sure the coast is clear, make sure that there wouldn't be any witnesses, his cover-up, all of these things kind of smack of someone whose conscience is bothering them, nagging at them that something's not exactly right about this, this exploit. And you can't help but think that, that while Moses' instincts are good, there's something quite immature, there's something a little impatient about his exploits. The very next day, he sees two Hebrews struggling together. And I think this incident uh, really provides a glimpse into how bad Israel's oppression had gotten. It gotten to a point where they're, They're actually turning on each other. That's a sad thing to see, isn't it? When you see fellow citizens at each other's throats, oppressing your brothers, that's a a dire circumstance to to find yourself in. And I find it interesting that when, when the New Testament authors are addressing congregations who are, in the middle of all kinds of persecution that's coming at them from the outside, have you ever noticed that a significant portion of those correspondences, those letters that the apostles write to these Christians, a significant chunk of them deals with how members of the church are to treat each other with unity and love. You'd think that if people are getting afflicted by their enemies, that that would kind of bind them together. That would automatically kind of give them a, a sort of camaraderie and unity. But, but it seems that in oppression, in affliction, in persecution, even those relationships within the body of Christ are in danger. Begin to, we begin to turn on each other. So Moses tries to reconcile the pair. But he judges that one of them is clearly in the wrong. And so he appeals to them, why why are you beating your brother? He's appealing to them on the basis of the fact that they're, they're, they're cut from the same cloth. They're both Hebrews. They're both in the same situation. The man's response is shocking, I think, on a couple of different fronts. First, he said, who made you prince and judge over us? And I, I think it's possible to detect a, at least a little bit of bitter resentment on the part of this man. Likely, he's speaking more for more than just himself when he sees Moses. And trust me, these people knew about Moses, this guy who's supposed to be their countryman, but instead he, he looks like an Egyptian prince. They all know that he, he's in tight with Pharaoh and his household by all appearances this guy's a traitor and and they're kind of spitting at this guy's kind of spitting as he says to Moses something like you may you might be a prince we all know you're a prince but who made you a prince over us get out of here man go on walk like an Egyptian something like that you know how it goes And then the man says, who made you judge? Have you heard that one before? Has anyone ever said that to you? When you seek to confront them with something that they're clearly in the wrong about? Who are you to judge, man? Where do you get off? Who died and made you king? Understand that all people in every place throughout all time resist being confronted with the fact that they're in the wrong. And that, that's always going to uh, provoke a very strong response. And people are wanting to know, what authority do you have? Who gave you the authority to say these things to me? Now, this man and everyone who follows him is, is saying this as a sort of rhetorical question where the strongly implied answer is nobody. But I think it's helpful to treat these As actual questions, at least just for a moment, take these as actual questions. No, really, Moses, who who gave you authority to be prince and judge over us? The only acceptable answer, I think, would be well, God did. But, But where have we seen that in the text? We haven't. It's coming. Beginning next week, Lord willing, we'll we'll get to see Moses' call and his commission. But that's chapter 3. We're still in chapter 2. And so we're kind of forced to the conclusion that it looks like Moses has done the same thing that we often do. Let's not castigate him and kind of put him off in a corner by himself. We do the same thing, which is to get out ahead of God. To, to engage in righteous kinds of exploits in our own strength according to our own timing rather than waiting on the Lord. And when we, when we pull these kinds of spiritual sinatras, you know, when we insist on doing things our way, that is always a recipe for disaster 100% of the time you're going to see things start to unravel pretty quickly for for Moses. And that leads us to the second part of this man's response. What, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And this would have shocked Moses' socks off, I think, if he was wearing any socks. Which he probably was. He's about 40 at this time and From personal experience, I can tell you that that's right about the time that a man is able to convince himself that sandals and socks go well together. But if Moses had any uh, socks on him, they would have been shocked off when this guy says that, what, are you going to kill me like you killed that guy? Because Moses suddenly realizes that the thing was known. He'd been so careful to conceal the matter. And it must have been, there's really no other options. They didn't have like security cameras everywhere. It must have been the guy that he rescued. It must have been the Hebrew that he stood up for went out and told all of his friends about it. And then it just spread like wildfire. And this is a frightening prospect for Moses because that means that it's only just a matter of time when Pharaoh himself is going to hear about it and then things are really going to kick off. And sure enough, very quickly, it seems, word gets back to Pharaoh and it's not long after that you would, you would see just plastered on every telephone pole and in post offices all across the delta a, uh, the picture of a man uh, bearing a very striking resemblance to Charlton Heston <laughs> under big block hieroglyphics that said wanted dead or alive so Moses gets out of Dodge those are just some of his exploits we'll see another one here in just a minute but, but what do you think you know typically when you think about exploits you're, you're thinking about heroic rescues You're thinking about throngs of of grateful people applauding. But all of that is missing. There's none of that here. Moses came unto his own, but his own are not receiving him. In fairness, this rejection of Moses' leadership is going to, to be par for the course. Okay, this is, not a, this is not a bug. This is, turns out to be a feature that the people are going to always consistently reject his leadership and question his authority. But here, at least, they had a bit of a point. Moses has yet to be called. He's, he's yet to be equipped. He's yet to be strengthened by God to deliver his people. Moses has a mind for the task, but he he lacks the all important mandate. He, he's got good instincts, I think. And, and we'll see that these instincts match with, with God's. But it's, it's obvious, isn't it, that Moses needs more preparation. And that leads us to our next sub point under the Hebrews response, namely his exile. Verse 15. So Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Now, we're not exactly sure where Midian is located. I think it's likely because this is a nomadic people and they were probably of no fixed address. But it's clear enough that Midian was out in the wilderness. So Moses, who is 40 years old at the time of his arrival, will be in this wilderness for 40 years. So you put these things together. Yeah, I uh, hope you don't think that I'm just um, making all of this up. You put this together that Moses kind of had his own exodus, and now Moses is going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. The idea seems to be that Moses is not, you know, retracing the steps, but personally he's pre-tracing the steps, That Israel is going to take on their way to the promised land. And just like it's going to be for Israel, Midian for Moses is going to be a time of testing, a time of humbling, an opportunity to encounter God in a life altering way. And thus, this is going to be a time of preparation for him for this great task that lays before him. So Moses goes into that region. He goes among the people of Midian, and verse 15 concludes, that, uh, concludes by saying that he went and, quote, sat down beside a well. Now, on the one hand, that's a, that's a very blase comment to make. Of course, that's what you would do if you're out in the desert. A well represents life. It's your source of water in an otherwise dry and barren wilderness, of course, this is where, gonna, where you're going to settle. This is where people are going to be. This is where the action's going to be. But on the other hand, especially after having just studied Genesis, you can't read a sentence like, Moses sat down beside a well without, you know, a knowing smile kind of crossing your, your lips. A well. We, we've come to understand from the life of the patriarchs that a well, first of all, is where you engage in exploits. It, it's a place where previously a man possessing seemingly superhuman strength was able to lift off the wellhead, big boulder, for a beautiful young lady. And that leads us to something else that we've come to expect from wells, which is, it turns out they're a great place for picking up chicks, And sure enough, this Midianite well did not disappoint on either of those fronts. Though everything's not kittens and rainbows at the beginning, right away Moses observes this terrible oppression taking place. These seven girls, these daughters of Ruel, a Midianite priest, Ruel meaning friend of God, interestingly enough, these girls came to water their father's flocks, but just as they're, you know, drawing out water and pouring them in the troughs to, to, you know, water their own flock, some shepherds, who I'm sure timed things just right, they came and they strong-armed the girls away from the well, away from the trough, so that their own flocks could be watered. That, that's what they would call today toxic masculinity. Okay, that is terrible that's brutal oppressive behavior but now here witness some real masculinity you know if you're a man like Moses uh, with a keen sense of justice you've got a heart for the oppressed you can't stay seated when you witness that kind of cruelty when you see that kind of abuse of strength and of power the text says Moses stood up and saved them. He drove away these losers, these these leeches, these wimps. And not only that, but he did the gentlemanly thing and he watered the flocks for these young ladies. Now their their father knew something was up right away because they're they're finished their job and they're back home way earlier than normal. And and you get the impression from that, I think that this kind of bullying had been going on for quite some time. it it become routine, a sort of pattern that they would take an, a really long time, maybe even double the time to water the flock. But today they're back early, and their father wants to know why. And so they explain that this really brave, this really fine Egyptian man delivered them out of the hands of the shepherds, and that he even drew water out of the well And watered the flock. And Ruel's like, and? Where is he? Surely you invited him over for dinner, didn't you? You didn't? Girls, what are you thinking? It's almost Valentine's Day. (laughs) Guys like that don't come along in the desert very often. Go, go. Don't text him. Call him that he may come and eat bread. And not only does Moses come for supper, but he is content to stay with the man, the passage says. And the man gives him one of his daughters to Moses for a wife. Um, Moses held fast to this woman, as he would to a woman named Zipporah. And she conceived and gave birth to a son Who Moses named Gershom. And that gives you a pretty good clue as to where Moses' head is at the time. Gershom seems to mean sojourner or exile. You get the strong impression that that Moses is feeling despised and displaced, that he's looking for a homeland, that, that his eye is ever towards his reward. And I wonder do you know that feeling? As you make your way through this wilderness world, that you're just not at home here. You're a sojourner, you're an exile. Your eye is looking towards your reward. (laughs) Anyway, that constitutes the response of this Hebrew to the groaning of his nation. It's seen in his exodus, his exploits, his exile. Let's look very quickly here at the heavenly response, which is found in verses 23 to 25. So in verse 23, the the scene shifts, once again, back to Egypt. Many days have passed, and that's putting it rather mildly. Many years have passed, 40 to be precise. And the headlines are that another pharaoh has died. If you're counting, that's two pharaohs, at least, that have died within the space of these two chapters. The pharaoh who uh, sought to kill Moses on two separate occasions. And who knows, this is so compressed that there, there may be plenty of pharaohs that this is talking about. But they're all dead. They're dying. And this is a message. This is a message for anyone who would dare set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, against his people. I, th- I, I think Moses wants us to get to the get that point with all of these death notices. These pharaohs who are so intent on killing themselves are killed. So, but now there's a regime change in Egypt and the Hebrews, I'm sure, are waiting on bated breath. They're, they're waiting to see if that means... Is going to mean new policies and perhaps a more kind and compassionate conservatism than previous administrations? And the question looming in everyone's mind would would definitely be, is there going to be any kind of relief to this oppression that we're under? Or is this affliction just going to continue with this new guy and forever? It didn't take long to realize that It was going to continue. That there was no end in sight to their afflictions as far as it concerned the Egyptians. And so we read that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. That they cried out for help. By the way, that's what affliction is in part designed to do. It's designed to humble us. It's, de- it's designed to elicit a cry from us, a, a plea for help, which is an admission that you cannot save yourself. When you cry out for help, you're crying to another for help. It's an admission that you cannot save yourself. We sing, who, O oh Lord, can save themselves? Their own souls could heal. And again, rhetorical question, clearly no one, but there was a time in our lives even under heavy affliction that we answered and still were tempted to answer no, I, th- I think I got this. I, I'm suggesting that part of the, the purpose in suffering is to bring us to a place where we completely lose confidence in ourselves and we cast ourselves completely on the mercy of Christ. My question is, have you done that today? You who are oppressed and afflicted by your own sin, will will you come to the end of yourself? Will you cry out to the Lord for help, for his rescue, for his deliverance? You cannot save yourself. Here's the good news. Cries for help coming from the oppressed, coming from the contrite, they, they're kind of like scents that come up off of dozens of crockpots in a church kitchen, okay? <laughs> they, they, they waft up, and, and they come all the way up into to noses in pews and in pulpits, and those scents hit in such a way that you can't help but just sit up and take notice more than that these smells want you to they 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 kind of prompt you to stand up and and go down and do something about the situation which I promise we'll we'll do here in just a minute but in the same way we we read this this wonderful line at the end of verse 23 their cry for rescue came up to God. Who is this God in heaven? You might wonder. And uh, I just want to tell you, he's going to reveal more of himself to Moses and to us next week in the most remarkable kind of a way. So you won't want to miss that. But what we learn of him in verses 24 and 25 should be enough to whet your appetite. There's four verbs in these verses. Four action words that are associated with God. And all of them, individually and especially taken together, this is incredibly encouraging. And perhaps you're experiencing affliction today. If, if you're here today groaning under the weight of hardship, if you're, if you're in the place of crying out to the Lord for rescue, I want you to be encouraged by... These four things about our God. First of all, He's a God who hears. Y- your cries do not fall on deaf ears. H- his face, his, his eyes, His ears are all pointed towards the righteous, and His ears are attentive to your prayers, every single one of them. Your, your groanings, Christian. Your groanings are not ignored. They, they come up to heaven and the Lord hears them and, and they move him. If I could speak in true orthodox sorts of ways, you've got a God who hears these cries. Secondly, he's a God who remembers. And you understand, I hope, that the Lord God is not like a man that he should forget. He's, you know, it's not like things are often slipping his mind. It's not like our groanings, you know, jog his memory and he's like, oh yeah, I was supposed to do something about that. No, absolutely not. That's not the language at all. This is covenantal language. This is the language of obligation. This is a way of saying that God does not forget any of the promises that he's ever made. In this case, these are, these are promises that he made first with Abraham, and then he remembered and ratified with Isaac, and he remembered and a- again ratifies it with Jacob. With every successive generation, God remembers his covenant, and he's bound himself to act on behalf of his people, and so it is with you. If, if you're his child, then he has made to you very great and precious promises. Promises that he will not fail to fulfill. He's going to remember all of the promises that he has ever made to you, and he will surely do them. Third, the God of our groaning is a God who sees. This is the same word that's used in reference to Moses. At that we saw at the very first verse of our passage, who Moses, you'll remember, went out and looked on or saw the burdens of his people. So again, that's a good thing that, that Moses' and God's uh, seeing are kind of in alignment here. However, as we pointed out, th- it seems to be a little bit backwards. The fact that God sees is the most fundamental and the most encouraging thing. And just like Moses seeing inevitably results in his action, so too the Lord's. He sees you. And you know, don't you, that your situation isn't just something that's passing through God's frame of reference and he's kind of looking at it blankly as the next person and the next thing comes across his vision. No, this is... God is truly seeing you. And his seeing of you is always a prelude to action. It always results on him springing into action for your defense. Finally, God knows. God knows. The word here is yada, which in scripture almost always refers to more than just mere head knowledge of a fact rather it describes a an intimate understanding not so much of a fact but of a person and the, the, you need to understand that the lord is so much more interested in you than in your situation he he knows you like a father knows his children and he knows what's best for you he he knows what we need what a comfort it is to know that God knows. He, knows. he knows the things that you're going through. That's for sure. But what's, what's more and what's better is that he knows you intimately. He, he knows your thoughts. He knows your coming and your going. He is intimately involved in you. He loves you. This is this is the God, that we are dealing with. a god A God who who sees, a God who knows, a God who remembers. a a God who who um, who loves his people with a, an undying love. who Who is moved? He's he's a God of compassion, as we'll see. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy and he delights to stand up in defense of, of you. Now I realize I've been going on for quite some time now, but I, I feel I still need to tell you that this sermon is not finished. I don't it might feel a little incomplete to you and if it does, that's good. I'm going to just hit pause here and I'm going to give it the rest of this sermon to you in about an hour from now as we are gathered together around the Lord's table. There's a few other things that I think we need to know